Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. But if you have your Bibles, and you can turn with me to the book of Revelation, you know, we've been studying this summer about the return of the Lord. And we've actually covered a lot of ground. You know, we've gone through Matthew 24, most uh, some of 25, and we've looked at what Messiah had told us about the last days in what is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. We made comparisons with Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21. We then moved over and started talking about the rapture and all of the significance of that. And so we looked in some uh, degree of detail in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then again, we looked at John chapter 14 and Messiah's promise there about him coming again. So we've looked at uh, a great many things or passages related to the return of the Lord. And so I thought, you know, I've never preached through the book of Revelation. I thought I might do that. We'll be interrupted by the high holy days, you know, and there may be some other moments. But this is a book that oftentimes does not get the coverage in services that it should get. I mean, this is an incredible book as you read through it. Yes, there's a great deal about judgment, but there's incredible things here about the character of Messiah. This is a book that is perhaps, perhaps, maybe with the exception of the book of Hebrews and the book of Matthew, might very well be the most Jewish book in all of the Brit Hadashah. Of course, it depends a great deal upon Daniel chapter 7, Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1. There are close connections with those books, and perhaps more than any other book in the entire Brit Hadashah are there these references to the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, if you don't have a sense of what the Hebrew Scriptures teach about the last days, it's very hard to understand the book of Revelation because it's completely dependent upon or related to much of what the prophets are saying there. Over and over again, there are linkages back to what the Hebrew Scriptures have had to say through the prophets. So there's a lot to be said about this book. And we don't have all the time to do that, so I'm hopefully, hopefully we can be circumspect with our time and focus in on those things that are particularly significant uh, for us. So let's look at the beginning of this book. It says, The Revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. By the way, this phrase, Yeshua the Messiah, here's an interesting thing about the book of Revelation. It will occur only three times in this book. 
a complete title of him. They're all right here in the first chapter. After that, any references to the Messiah are only made reference to with his name, Yeshua. Now, why is that? I'm not really sure. But I think it's a peculiarity, don't you think? That in the very first chapter, we've got the full title of Messiah. And of course, what we read in the first chapter is this marvelous manifestation of the gloriousness of Yeshua in the midst or in the presence of John. Perhaps that is why his full title is given to us in this first chapter. In any case, we read the revelation of Yeshua, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now, there's some interesting things here, too. Notice what he says in the very first verse. This is the revelation of Yeshua, which God gave to him. You know, I had never noticed that before. I always saw the book as being a book about the revelation of Yeshua, the manifestation of Yeshua in his glory, in his ministry of judgment, his ministry of redemption, and uh, his ministry of, uh, of presence and power. And yet what the opening verse tells us is the revelation that we're about to receive is revelation that God had given to Yeshua. And then he goes on to tell us that Yeshua gave this revelation to his angel, which in turn gave this revelation to John, who in turn gives this revelation to us. Because that's what he just told us. And in fact, you'll read in the book of Revelation on three occasions, reference made to Yeshua's angel who carried this revelation to John. You'll see this at the end of the book of Revelation. You'll see it again here in the first chapter. So what an interesting chain of circumstances. Right at the front end, we have this revelation, this unveiling, this unfolding. That's what the word apocalypse means. We get the word apocalypse from it. It means an unveiling, an unfolding, a making known of something that hasn't been made known in all of its clarity with which you're going to read about here in this book. And the revelation is about God's redemptive program. What goes on with regard to God bringing about what he has intended to bring about from the very beginning of time. To bring an end of sin. To bring an end of the effects of sin. To bring an end of the alienation of people from God. And ultimately to bring about the kingdom and the eternal state. The book of Revelation doesn't stop at the Messianic age. The 1,000 year reign of Messiah. That you read of in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. But chapters 21 and 22 go on to an eternal state. Goes beyond what the Lord had in store for this heaven and this earth. And it looks forward to a time when the Lord will have a new heavens and a new earth. And he doesn't tell us all that will transpire during that time. But the book of Revelation takes us from a a time of need to the time of God's eternal plans and purposes from beginning to end. And this revelation, interestingly enough, he says, he gave it to by sending his angel to his servant, John. Right at the beginning, we have reference to an angel. The book of Revelation has over 60 references to angels. This is their book. While angels appear on the scene of history throughout the scripture, 
They nowhere appear in such clustered revelation as here in the book of Revelation. So this is, in a way, a book that brings attention to some degree of how the Lord brings into reality the things that occur in our world. It was Thomas Aquinas who was called the angelic doctor because in his philosophical routine, he ascribed all of God's handiwork through the intermediary agencies of angels. And the reason he did that was because of his study of the book of Revelation and all other kinds of of, uh, unveilings of the work of angels in the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Covenant scriptures as well. So right at the front end, we're introduced to some very interesting kinds of things. And now look at this phrase, the things that must soon take place. I love that little word, must. These things are not possibilities. They are necessities. They will, in fact, happen. Right at the front end, we're being introduced to a God who is in control of all things. He's a God who is sovereign in his power and in the outworking of his plans and purposes. These are not just things that could happen, might happen, should happen. They are things that must happen. Because they are the things that God has determined by his own will to come to bear with regard to his own plans and his own purposes. And while the book of Revelation tells us about these end-time plans and purposes, make no mistake, you and I are living in the things that must take place as well. Maybe not the must things that will take place that are described in the book of Revelation, but the must things that will take place within the course of history as God has determined it to come about. Now with that, I sound like a real Calvinist, don't I? You know, but it's very hard to sort of escape the sovereignty of God. It's an impossibility. And thus, when we read a book like this, when we read an opening verse like this, John could have written this in a variety of ways, but no, he tells us these are not just things that will come to pass. Oh, no, no, no. These are things that must come to pass. And I'll never forget when I spoke at a church years and years ago, you know, when you entered the church, it had a sign on the front of the entrance door that said, enter to give praise and worship to God. And then on the back side, as you exited, it said, uh, exit to enter the mission field, you know. And so the whole thing is that God's plans and purposes is to reach out into the world. And to bring people into a loving relationship with himself. So these are things that must take place. And the things that happen in our lives are things that must take place. Even as God has determined those things to take place. And how that is all connected to the freedom that we also have. Is something that we will never unravel. And something that is of a mystery kind of thing in our world. But when we look at this verse. We can't escape what John writes. These are things that must take place, for God has so determined them to take place. And by the way, that gives an interesting sense of what history really is. History is not just the reflection on events as they happen to occur. 
History is really the fingerprint of God in bringing about the events of this world in the way that he wants them to be. And while that raises mystery and it may raise you know, questions in our minds about which we're not very happy with, especially when we think of the tragedies that befall us, we need to remember that the Lord brings about the things that must take place. On the other hand, they can be very comforting because then we don't have to be anxious for anything because everything that takes place is happening in accordance with God's will. And therefore, we can relax as best we can with his help in what is unfolding in our lives. So as this text goes on, I'm sorry, I'm just sort of stopping. These things just sort of start jumping out at you, don't they? And notice that he says he's not only has this revelation brought to bear to Messiah, who then brings it to his angel. Notice that too. This is not just to an angel. Yeshua has his angel. Now, I don't know exactly what that might mean. Is there sort of an angel that is simply attached to him? This is his angel? Or does he mean it generically? All angels are his angels. I just don't know, you know, where to land on that one. But I do think it's a peculiar phrase. You know, Yeshua could have just said, reveal this to an angel who revealed it to John. Okay, but the moment says to his angel... It almost opens a door of thought that sort of changes for me, you know. But in any case, the revelation is given to Yeshua, that's given to an angel, that's given to John. And notice what John tells us. We're told, first of all, it's his servant. The word here is doulos, bondservant, his slave. It's a word that Paul uses over and over again as he introduces himself as an apostle. He also says a slave of Yeshua, a bondservant of Yeshua. When you think of John, remember, he's writing this. John, the beloved disciple, the one who sat next to Yeshua at the Passover, the one who was at the cross when Yeshua died, the one who was given the trust of his mother, now refers to himself, I'm just a servant, you know. You might think that there would have been something, I don't know, warmer, perhaps, but, you, but John is going to see Yeshua in a way that he perhaps has never seen him before. And after he sees him this way, and now that he writes, the only thing he could say is, look, I'm just his servant. And I may have had a close relationship, maybe in a way closer than any other. Remember, he was one of the sons of Zebedee. Peter, James, and John, those were the three inner core of the 12 that were often invited. You know, you would think that might be reflected in how he might make reference to himself, but no, he refers to himself like everyone is before the Lord. And despite his close connection during his earthly life and ministry, nevertheless, now he speaks of himself here in this book, not in that kind of language. He's a servant. And the Lord and John uh, will bring this revelation that's been given to him to the servants of God. And we are among them today. He goes on to write. He describes himself as the one who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua, even to all that he saw. I think this is really cool, too. John is telling us that he is an eyewitness of 
what he's about to unfold to us, what he's about to describe. He is a witness. And look at this. He not only says that he's a witness to this revelation, but he's a witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua. So now this revelation is not just revelation as such. It's God's word to us. It takes on another dimension. On the one hand, we're given insight into what John sees, but what he sees is God's revelation, not only to John, but now as it's inscribed, it is God's word to us as well. And then he goes on to say, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, isn't that interesting? You know, this is a revelation. But it also has another component to it. It's prophetic in nature. Here's a case where John, who is an apostle, who is a servant, is also a prophet. And as a prophet now, the book of Revelation is his prophecy about the end times and what is to take place shortly before the Lord comes again. So now he begins to write much like the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures. This is now a prophecy. But yet, you know what's so strange about this letter is that it's also a letter. Look at, for example, in in verse 4. He says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. This is like the opening greeting of a letter. That's what we read all the time. And when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, look how he closes. He says, the grace of the Lord Yeshua be with you all. Amen. That's how all the letters are closed, too. So here you have this revelation that's given to him, which is described as a prophecy, which is couched in the form of a letter. And that's very peculiar, right? But yet John is writing this revelation in the context of a letter to these churches in Asia. But before we get to that, let's come back one more thing here. And he says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the works of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, something that struck me is simply this. For 40 some odd years or so, you know, I've been involved in ministry, either on a more formal or less formal basis. And while I've read the book of Revelation many, many times, If I really paid attention to it, I would be having in all of the congregations or churches or ministries I've ever ever been in, I'd be reading from the book of Revelation aloud every service. Why? Because if I really believe there's a blessing attached to reading it aloud, that's a very easy blessing to get. You know, that's a simple one. I don't have to do anything except read the book of Revelation aloud. And there's a blessing attached to that. So when you do your devotionals, add a portion of the book of Revelation and read it aloud, and God promises a blessing. And that's what he says. Now, you need to understand, too, in the first century, reading aloud was really a phrase that denoted the public reading of this book. So it's not really in devotions, but, you know, try, see what happens. (laughs) But it's certainly in the public context. And so if there's a book that we should be reading publicly, it's the book of Revelation, right? And not only because of the blessing, but there's great stuff in here anyway. We don't have to read the judgmental things. We can like skip a page. It doesn't say you have to read every single word. 
you know? We could read those words that are pertinent to our worship context. But the point is, there's a blessing attached to the reading of this word. And it's not only attached to the reading of the word, but if you hear it being read, you also are told, we are told, you receive a blessing. And then if we would keep the words, now this is really strange too. How do you keep the words of prophecy? You know, it's telling us about the future and things that are going to unfold. But yet he says, those that read this aloud, hear it, and keep it will be greatly blessed. Which means to say that there are moral components to the book of Revelation too. We generally, in our day and age, look at the book of Revelation as an information book. A book to tell us the events that are going to occur and unfold in the not too distant future. And it is to some degree that, for it is a prophecy. And what is prophecy? It is a foretelling and a forthtelling of the Word of God. It is a foretelling in which it tells us about future events. In that sense, it's information. But it also foretells us the will of God. In that context, it, is in a, it provides moral clarity with regard to how it is that we ought to live. So in chapter 1, we're coming back. Isn't that a great verse, though? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the work of this, the words, excuse me, of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it. And this is why, for the time is near. There's no doubt that John paid close attention to what Yeshua had taught as recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Because Yeshua told them, be watching, be ready, be laboring, for the day and hour no one knows. And here he tells us, these events are near. Now what does he mean by near? You know, Does he mean that it's going to happen soon within the lifetime of the individuals? Well, certainly not. John's writing around 95 and these events didn't happen soon chronologically. But there are different ways scholars understand this phrase that these events are near or will happen soon. Some understand them to mean that once they start unfolding, they will unfold in rapid sequence, and therefore they will happen in a soon manner or a near manner. That's one way. And by the way, that's how I think he means to say it. These events are near in that when they, when they occur, they're going to happen very quickly. Well, it's just a seven-year period. That is very quickly. No one knows when the rapture will take place. We talked about that already. So therefore, we always had to be ready, not because it's near or far, but because we don't know when it will occur and it could happen at any moment. So some people understand the sense of nearness, not only meaning that it would occur rapidly when, it, when the events unfold, but also that they can occur in a, in a time that we don't expect. Can't say imminently at any moment because there are certain events that will trigger the events that occur here. So they have to happen at a precise moment about which we know something, about which the prophets have spoken. And so I think what John is telling us is that we always need to be ready. We always need to be watching. And we always need to be 
focused in on what is about to unfold because when they unfold, the time comes to an end very quickly and the opportunity for service comes to an end. Now, with that introduction, John then begins to tell us about this letter. He says, beginning in verse 4, This letter is written to the seven churches that are in Asia. He says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Yeshua the Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, this is packed full of all kinds of stuff. But let me just share with you a couple of things here. Notice, first of all, John's writing to seven churches that are in Asia, and they are named for us in verse 11. Now, there are other prominent churches in Asia. For example, the church of Colossae was a church in Asia. The church of Troas was a church in Asia. And so question has always written, uh, has been raised, why these seven? Well, there are different answers that have been given. Some understand seven here merely symbolical, and it's a, it signifies uh, all the churches because seven is a number of completion. And that while he writes to these seven, the words are not meant just for these seven, but for all congregations of believers who would read these words. Well, while that may be possible, I don't think that's what John means here because here's an interesting thing that indicates this letter is for all believers and all congregations everywhere because when he writes to each church individually, every time he says in conclusion, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. It's a really interesting expression. You know, like for example, in chapter 2, he will say the angel of the church, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. And then when he comes to, it, uh, to an end, let's see if I can find it. Um, in verse 7, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what he wrote there was to the church at Ephesus. But what he has written is not just for the church at Ephesus. He says, whoever has ears, what the Lord says to all the churches, plural. So we understand that the book of Revelation, couched in these letters to these churches, is not meant just for these churches, but for all congregations of believers gathered wherever they might be through all of history and all of time. So what I think here is going on is when he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, why these seven? It's very interesting that there was a road that was created that revolved around these seven churches. And thus it might very well be that he wrote them to these congregations of believers because they were on this main, I wouldn't want to call it a trade route, but this main road that led through Asia Minor And from each one of these central congregations, as the letter would be copied, it would be disseminated out from them and therefore would be uh, spread far and wide quicker and perhaps sooner than they might otherwise be. So it might very well be, and we don't know for sure, that these seven are singled out because of their really geographical location to other congregations and to the greater area. 
And look how he greets them. He says, grace to you and peace. That's the way you see Paul oftentimes writes his letters. Grace is God's favor. It's not just unmerited favor, but it's also grace of empowerment. You remember what the Lord said to Paul when he said, you know, he wanted this thorn in the flesh taken from him. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. He doesn't just mean grace in unmerited favor. He means power to live through the difficulty that you're faced with. So sometimes grace is merely unmerited favor, the favor of God that we've not earned. But sometimes the grace of God is empowerment by God that we've not earned in order to get on with our life. I think probably John means it in both ways, but something to reflect on. He says, grace to you and also peace, shalom, from him who is and was. Of course, peace here is from God. And the peace of God, the word peace, shalom, means to be whole, to be well, to be full, to be healthy. And so there's a sense in which the peace of God is meant to enable us to have peace with him. Because as you remember, the... Paul writes that while we were enemies of God, he died for us. But now we have peace with God. We are his friends. We are his children. We are his redeemed. And so grace, empowerment to help you get through life. Grace, God's favor toward you and forgiveness of sin that you've not earned. Peace, peace with you and God. Peace, be among yourselves and one another. Peace, Be within your heart as you struggle with things in life. May the fullness of God's goodness rest squarely upon you, his grace and his peace. And notice where this grace and peace comes from. Here's a really interesting section because it focuses on the triunity of God. He says here, it is from the one who was, who is, and is to come. This is the Hebrew expression of the sacred name of God, I am. I am means the eternal one. One who was and is and is to be is one who always is. This is sort of a a, um, Hellenistic way of saying the Hebrew idea of the eternality of God. The great, I don't know, Jehovah, the great Yahweh. It's the sacred name of God. We would think it refers to Yeshua, the one who was when he came. The one who is, as he's present, the one who is to come. We might think of it that way, but no, no, no. This is a reference to God the Father, you might say. The one who is and was and is to come. The Yahweh, the one who is always. But look what he also says. He says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now here I think, and seven, by the way, comes up repeatedly in the book of Revelation. You got seven churches, seven eyes, seven thrones. You got sevens of all kinds of things, seven judgments. They're just repeated there. And I think it is being used symbolic to denote completion and fullness, a sense of entirety. So here when it speaks of the seven spirits, it's speaking about the Spirit of God and all of His glory and all of His fullness. This is not the only place where you can see this happen. Take a look at chapter 3. In verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You'll see it again in chapter 4. You'll see it again in chapter 5. The sense of seven spirits is speaking about the Spirit of God in His fullness. 
By the way, this is why we recite Isaiah chapter 11 when we light the candles. It's the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit of God that rests upon Yeshua. Now, in the Hebrew, technically, there's really six. It opens up, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and power and might. The Spirit of, and so on. And I don't have a member. Oh, they're right there. So this, uh, but it's covered. It's covered. It's, co- it's covered. Ah, uh, there it is. So we say the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, fear of the Lord. That's six. But you see, it opens up with the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Now, if you look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of that, in the Greek translation, it has seven. It doesn't have it listed the way it is in the Hebrew text. So if John was, to some degree, uh, understanding the scriptures from its translation into Greek, well, then that would correspond exactly with what John says. So when he says, grace and peace to you from God the Father, the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come, the eternal one, and then he says, the, also from the seven spirits of God, it means the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit of God. And then he goes on to say, and from Yeshua the Messiah. There's the second time you had the full title of Messiah. Yeshua the Messiah, who's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. We're going to stop here, but let me just share with you what these three phrases mean, or how I understand them in any case. First of all, the grace and peace from, comes from God the Father, who was, who is, who is to come. comes from the Spirit of God, the seven spirits that are before the Lord. And it speaks of, and Yeshua the Messiah. The faithful witness, we're told, he is, he is described as. He's also the firstborn, and he's also the ruler of the kings of the earth. As the firstborn, uh, excuse me, as the faithful witness, he's a prophet. When it says that he's a faithful witness, he doesn't just mean faithful witness of the revelation that's contained in the book of Revelation. Remember what it said at the very beginning, the revelation of Yeshua, the Messiah that was given to him from God, which God had gave to him. Now he's the faithful witness, not merely in the sense of faithfully disseminating the revelation that was given to him, verse 1. But he's the faithful witness in the fullest sense of the word, for he has faithfully witnessed and testified of who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is from beginning to end throughout his entirety as Messiah, Savior, and Lord. So he is the faithful witness. The word witness, by the way, is where we get the Hebrew words. The Greek word is martyreo. We get the word martyr from. It's very interesting that he would refer to himself as the faithful, well, we could say martyr. As a faithful witness, his witness culminated in his giving of his life for the ransom of many. A martyr gives his life for a great cause. Yeshua gave his life for a great cause, our salvation. For without his death, there would be no life provided for us. He is that martyreo in the fullest sense of the word. And he's a faithful one who laid down his life a ransom for many, even as the prophet said he would, and as the Father had determined for him to lay down. Not my will be done, but your will be done. He's faithful to the things of God. And he was a faithful witness who bore testimony in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his coming again. 
He's the faithful witness from beginning to end. He's not only the faithful witness, he's the firstborn of the dead. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses like to say, you see, Jesus was born. Well, there's no question there. He was born in Bethlehem at a certain date with respect to his humanity. But firstborn is a very unique word in the Greek here. And the word doesn't just mean born first, although he was certainly born first among the children that Mary had. It means preeminent. That's what firstborn means. He's the preeminent one from among the dead. In fact, no one else has yet been resurrected with this sense of what resurrection is. Lazarus was resurrected from the dead to die again. Even as all the people that Jesus rose from the dead were so resurrected. But that's not what is meant here. What is meant by resurrection is not merely coming back from the dead, but also being transformed from being corruptible to being incorruptible, from being mortal to being immortal, from being less than glorious to being glorious. Yeshua at his resurrected was raised so as never to die again. All other resurrections were resurrections to experience death, unfortunately for them, one more time. But for Yeshua, it was a resurrection in which no longer will he die. One day, as we saw First Thessalonians in 4, right? The dead in Messiah will rise first, and then we who are alive at the time of that event will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, never to experience death again. The dead in Messiah will be raised, and they'll be raised incorruptible, imperishable, in a twinkling of an eye. Those of us who are alive will be transformed instantaneously into a glorif- our glorified position, never having experienced death ever. And that's why Paul calls it a mystery in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a revelation that some among us will never die, Paul said. And that's the mystery that's never been revealed before. So now, as the firstborn among the dead, he is preeminent. Why? Because he's been resurrected so as never to die. He is, chronologically, the first one to experience that, and we will follow him when the time comes for us to join him. But by being firstborn, it means he has the right of primogenitor. That's what the Hebrew Scriptures all talk about. And the right of primogenitor is the one who is born first has the patriarchal blessing and a double portion. Yeshua is the preeminent one, who receives the fullness of blessing, the Messianic age, and the one who receives the full inheritance that is entrusted or prepared for him. So he is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from among the dead, never to die again, the preeminent one, the sovereign one. And he is the ruler of the kings on earth. He will come again to reign, not only over the kings of Israel, but over all kings who have ever existed as a king, he will reign preeminently over them. In these phrases, we have the three offices of Yeshua. 
He's a prophet, a faithful witness. He's the firstborn from among the dead so as to be our great high priest who always makes intercession for us. And he's the coming king who will reign over the ends of the earth. Yeshua says at the end of the book of Revelation, Behold, I come quickly. And why he gives us that phrase is to tell us that we are to be ready for him at any moment. And being ready for him means knowing him as Messiah, embracing him, inviting him into our life and into our heart. And it means once having invited him into our life, our determination is to live for him. And the empowerment of the Spirit is to enable us to do just that. The focus of the book of Revelation is on Yeshua. That's where he is given to us in stark unveiling of his glory. And it will, be reappear, it will reappear at the end of the book of Revelation. In between are the events that will transpire to bring us from glory to glory, you might say. And so as we read this book, let's remember, there's a blessing attached to it for hearing it read. There's a blessing attached for reading it. There's a blessing attached particularly for obeying it and walking in his ways. So let's pray. And while I'm praying, the ushers can be ready. The worship team can come on up. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning of worship and praise. And we thank you for this glorious book. What an incredible way to start this letter, this prophecy, this testimony about what is to take place in the not-too-distant future, it appears. We pray, Lord, that as we glean these words of truth, that, Father, our attention is placed fully on you. And that the events, Father, may be intriguing and interesting and ones that we need to pay attention to. Ultimately, Lord, the focus of all of that attention is so that we would not miss you as our Savior while we still have opportunity to embrace you as such. For there's a day coming when you will come as judge. And there's a day coming when you will come as king. But right now is the day of salvation. As Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve. And so, Father, may our choice be to serve you, to follow you, and to lift your name on high. May we do that verbally, but may we also do that demonstratively as we seek to demonstrate your presence in our lives. So we bless you, Lord, and we thank you. And we pray that your spirit might move upon us and upon our friends and neighbors who don't know you and upon our communities, especially as the high holy days are approaching. Might you open the hearts of many of your people, Israel, to receive Yeshua as Messiah and to find him as their king and as their Lord. For it's in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. 
And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.